Hi, everybody. I'm Jamie Fenton, developer of GORF and a bunch of other strange video games from way back when. And I'm proud to appear on the Ted Dabney Experience podcast. second episode of the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May and this is a podcast project designed to allow Paul Drury, Tony Temple and I to sit and chat with a variety of leading lights and creative icons from the golden age of video arcade gaming. I'm a collector of classic arcade games. Tony, hello, is the deed holder for the wonderful arcadeblogger.com and Paul, hello, is a long-standing contributor to Retro Gamer magazine. Our guest for this episode is the developer of one of the most iconic video games of all time, Gorf. Jamie Fenton is responsible for the original multi-game shooter, known also for its distinctive synthesized speech, goading and challenging young prospective starfighters from across the arcade floor. Jamie, back in 2005, you said that you thought transgender programmers were as common as gay men in the floor industry. 15 years on, do you still think that's the case? Uh, I would say it's pretty darn common. Um, I've long since lost track of how many trans people I know who've been in the video game industry. And it's uh, lots and lots of them. But uh, I don't know. The only reason I can't be defend that particular statement is I actually don't know how many gay people there are in the floral industry, <laughs> except that they're by reputation. There are a lot of them, I guess. And I think by the similar reputation, there are a lot of trans people in the game industry. Why, why do you think that might be? <laughs> you can come speculate about all kinds of ideas. I mean, you know, most trans people sort of grow up uh, a little bit socially distant from other people because they're different. I, I, I certainly was um, in that category of, of, of sort of being thought of as the, the freak or something when I was growing up. And so what you wind up doing is rather than doing the things with all the other kids, you sort of wind up building uh, fantasies in your mind and so forth. Because it's sort of an interesting um, contrast, I would say, between what, what the stereotype of what a gamer is and what a uh, trans person is. It's, it's sort of like, yes, a lot of game engineers are uh, maybe trans, but the, the, certainly the gamer culture doesn't glorify being trans. It probably goes, does the opposite. So there's a bit of a disconnect. Of course, when, when, you, when you started programming games in the 70s, it was a really male-dominated yes. industry. Was, was that at all difficult for you? Not at all, because I didn't actually realize I was trans until I was 38 years old, which is actually not that uncommon because <laughs> usually people they, they sort of they know there's a, a, a how do you say it, the woman within but they don't want to be known as trans people and they're afraid of getting uh, discriminated against and so forth which is of course an ongoing problem but uh, so they usually put up a big fight to try to fit in as a man and you I've, I've known uh, people that go off and become like navy seals or delta force commandos and stuff like this who fighter pilots <laughs> that have all uh, tried doing that to try to try to sort of wedge their personalities over into being stereotypically male and 
after a while you give up. And sometimes that happens when you're in your 30s or 40s. I'm kind of intrigued then, put it the other way, is that going into a male-dominated industry like computer and engineering, was that, do you think that was slightly you emphasizing the masculine part of your uh, identity? Uh, not really, because being, um, when I was growing up, uh, yes, the other kids sort of figured out that there were, uh, they mostly thought I was gay. And I, of course, didn't like thinking of myself as gay, but they also didn't like me for being sort of the smart science kid, if you will. You joined the industry in the 70s, but actually your experience with computers started earlier than that. Tell us about the late 60s when I believe you started using a PDP-8. Uh, no, but uh, it's close. <laughs> I did Sorry. use a, P a PDP-8 was one of the earliest computers I worked with, but I actually worked with a time-sharing computer, which meant you basically had a teletype and you would call up with a... a I guess it was a 110 baud modem and would um, type at the computer and it would type things back. And this was in our math class. And I um, really took to it really quickly and um, did some games back then. One of them would play craps <laughs> and one of them would play blackjack. <laughs> and this was just on a uh, computer terminal and you would type in, you know, R for roll the dice, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, of course, there's a whole tradition of computer games that sort of existed before there was even graphics. 1970, 1971, something like that was when I was doing this. And so I've been, it go, goes way back for me. <laughs> um, I'm interested then you, you were using computers to make games even from that early, uh, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. How did that then lead to you joining Dave Nutting Associates? Okay. Well, there's there's a step in between, which is going to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. What happened was after I did my games there, my parents joined a religious order for Christian existentialist revolutionaries. <laughs> and wow. my family joined this religious order and uh, they went up, moved up to Cleveland, Ohio, and they sent me off to Milwaukee where I lived as a 17-year-old with you know, somebody else being my parent, so to speak. And this was a thing they did to try to help people develop. Um, I was just really up for it then because I wanted to get away from my mom and dad. <laughs> of wow. course, now, once you get away from your mom and dad, you start missing them. But in any case, so I wound up in Milwaukee. I went to an all-black high school for one semester. There was a computer class there. The computer class the teacher of the computer class spotted me as a talent and then introduced me to the people at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where I went and to college and then got, became a computer bum right away. <laughs> Spent about four years there, three or four years there, and uh, completed maybe a year and a half worth of courses and just did a lot of screwing around on my own. And anyway, after that, one of the professors I worked for knew a gentleman named Jeff Fredrickson, who was one of his classes, who Jeff had invented a video game architecture, which uses frame buffers, and was able to get a patent on it. And so he needed programmers. And so he hired me and another programmer at UWM named Tom McHugh. And then we went over and started working for him. You were separated from your parents when you were 17. Then you went to, you know, as a, as a white young, eventually trans person, went to an all-black uh, high school. 
you seem like you very much have been the outsider. Did, did that actually help when it came to creating games? Uh, maybe, but it's uh, it's hard to tell because you you know you, you, I'm such a mix of strange ideas and places and attitudes. It's hard to, to trace which one turned me into a game designer. And in fact, when I first started with Dave Nutting Associates, it was David Nutting was was Jeff's partner. And he sort of was the creative force and Je uh, Jeff designed the hardware. And so we, we started there and they had me doing pinball machines using a, another thing that they that Jeff invented as a scheme for, for doing pinball machines. And we've made one of the first microprocessor controlled pinball machines ever. And were you pleased to, were you pleased to be uh, starting in pinball? Was that something that appealed to you? Well, it, it, it when I when I started, it didn't appeal to me, and so it took you took a you know a little while to get over the the association with the mafia and everything that people sort of had back then. <laughs> but uh, which they you know once I got there, entered the industry for real, you realize that that's pretty ridiculous uh, attitude to have. So it was one of these things that grew on me, and one of the things that really helped it grow on me is that's when the movie Tommy came out and the whole pinball wizard phenomena happened. So that was, uh, it, it sort of turned it from something that seemed I was suspicious of to something that was cool. And how was the um, pinball industry then, um, Jamie? Uh, presumably Gottlieb were riding high. Yeah. How did you guys look to compete in what was a um, booming industry at the time? Yeah, well, there's what they call electromechanical pinballs, which mean that there's a lot of relays behind the back glass and they all trip when various events happen on the play field. So it meant that you, to make a new game, you'd have to go uh, design a new schematic with all the relays and so forth and build logic into it so that it would score uh, appropriately. And, and there are some cases where, for example, uh, the, there's, there's usually what they call pot bumpers that are in the middle of the play field and you hit one of those and then the, you fire them and that kicks the ball at a higher velocity into some uh, random direction. <laughs> and so you would have to sense when that event was taking place and then turn around and fire that uh, solenoid. Mm -hmm. So, so back then you, you had to build a separate schematic for every pinball machine and you know, support a, a number of uh, products, you know, for eternity effectively, because operators would be putting it out in various places, trying to earn profits and as they'd have to get replacement parts and so forth as the things deteriorated. Mm. So our innovation was that we could make the programming of the pinball machines much easier and much, uh, much more generic, you know, so you could put a very common PC board that would then be um, customized for the play field by uh, using a virtual machine type architecture where you can have a little mini assembler language that would say some things like if the sense switch is uh, true then fire the pop bumper for 250 milliseconds and so you could actually sort of script out what you wanted each pinball event to actually accomplish. Mm -hmm. I remember um, sort of surprising David Nutting because the First pinball machine took a couple of we uh, months to get all working well. And the second pinball machine took six hours. And <laughs> he thought it would take a lot longer. Oh, wow. Okay. And to what extent did um, did you view Dave Nutting, you know, as a sort of mentor figure? Or was it very much everybody just sort of mucked in and, and were treated as equals? Um, well, the, the, there, was, uh, there were two levels, of course. There were the employees and then there were the partners. And those two were the partners and we were the employees. So... 
I didn't get a particularly good reception to the idea of me being uh, getting you know stock in the company or anything. <laughs> so um, you know, Dave was the boss. Right. Jeff sort of thought I was really really smart uh, and would always try to encourage me. David, I sort of comes off as sort of a gruff person when you first start working for him. But after a while, he grows on you. Yeah, David worked for a company that, God, I'm trying to remember, Brick Stevens is their name. And he's designed all kinds of strange products, including helicopters and mixers for the kitchen and so forth. And one of the things he, he did was the there's a fancy uh, roadster car called the Excalibur. So he's done all these things. So he was actually <laughs> quite a gifted industrial designer. And I learned a lot from him about how to make games that engage people and make money. Right. Yeah. And and presumably at some point there was a switch from pinball to video games. Was that a sort of sudden decision or did you just sort of bleed into to video games? Well, as I say, I got that pinball machine done early, the second one. And so I had a little time and I wanted to do video games. Um, I asked David and Jeff if I could do one and they thought, they wanted to build a blackjack machine. And so uh, this would basically be a cocktail mo uh, model. Right. And it had a payout shoot. So you could actually uh, pay off uh, winners. Right. Now, one of the things that's unusual about our game was that I asked, you know, what should the uh, house percentage be? Wow. And they, they wanted it to be just one deck, the same rules that, you know, the standard blackjack rules, which are uh, would mean that if we, we actually put this thing out, we would have been clobbered immediately by card counters because there's no, nobody there to stop you from having a little notebook and writing down. <laughs> so, so it was a little impractical in that respect, but it wound up being a great demo. And so I programmed it. Uh, one of the things I did is I created a little shuffle animation where you could see the, the deck in a side view and the, the, the cards would all float down and, and interleave and so forth. And David thought that was the coolest thing ever. So about that time, I shifted to uh, uh, video games. This this blackjack machine sort of predated what we now see in casinos all over Vegas. That's right. And uh, what happened to it was it apparently was given to Bally Midway when the, the DNA shut down and then they put it in this sort of their, so if you can imagine the, the scene from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where they put the Lost Ark in this big warehouse full of boxes. They did something like that with the, where they put it a lot dirtier <laughs> and probably a lot less organized. So I, I, I was told that if I wanted to put on real grubbies and go around, I could probably go searching through the, this uh, uh, storage area and maybe it's there, but uh, I haven't. <laughs> That's interesting. And you mentioned Bally Midway. So there, there was a transition from DNA, Dave Nutting Associates, to Bally Midway. Right. Because what they did is um, when Bally Midway saw the inventions that Jeff had made and the progress we were making on uh, Gunfight and the pinball machine project I was working on, they made an agreement to basically give uh, the two partners you know, a big chunk of cash and get an employment contract for them to move down to Chicago and start grinding out more games. And that's how I wound up in Chicago. Jamie, um, I'm, I'm always interested in the period after Pong, but before Space Invaders, that kind of mid-70s period where there were so many kind of firsts in the industry. And one of them was in 1975 with Gunfight, 
That's usually cited as the first example of recognisably human figures shooting each other. And I just wondered, was there a was there any internal discussion that this might be controversial? Um, no. <laughs> we thought that um, well, gunfighting is uh, has actually been a. a I won't say a sport, but you know, quick draw contests and so forth have been popular. This was maybe a little, this is certainly before the era where uh, people would go postal, so to speak. So there wasn't a lot of um, concern about it then. There was, there was a follow-on to gunfight that we created called Boot Hill, which did get some controversy. But that was because the, the city of Chicago didn't want it to be licensed because what would happen is you would shoot your opponent and your opponent would fall over and then they would float up to the top part of the screen and then a cross would appear on Boot Hill. They didn't like that. That's 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 at least what the story is. <laughs> it's a little sacrilegious. Intriguing. Uh, maybe maybe you were making a comment about resurrection or you know that or something. I don't know what it was, but we 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 had heard that and. Uh, it was kind of uh, laughable. No, the, the game that, of course, came out that really generated all the controversy was Death Race, which was about this that same era. And that one got on television for people running other people over with their cars. So <laughs> it's OK to shoot people, but not run them over. Um, the gunfight's also um, well known because it was one, if not the first game, to have a microprocessor in. But that's a kind of interesting story because the game, I think, was made by Tato in hardware and then it, it came over to DNA for you to then turn it into code. How did that process work? Then? Well, that was the thing that Tom McHugh was on when we when I first arrived, was actually doing the gunfight coding. So, was it, so you were involved. Were you literally sent a board from Tato and they said, you know, can you turn this into a game that would run on a microprocessor? No. No, they, they actually, you know, there's an executive who runs uh, Tato who made a deal with probably Hank Ross, who was at that time the president of Midway. And I'm not sure quite how we got the description of it, but none of us got to go to Japan, <laughs> unfortunately. So, um, yeah, so that, it was pretty much they gave us the game. In fact, I don't even think the game ever made it over to our lab. It probably just made it over to Valley Midway and some, maybe David Nutting went over there to look at it. So you just sort of, you looked at it on screen working in you know a game made in in hardware and then you came back and tom with some help from you then just a tiny bit this virtual machine idea that i had uh for pinball also works pretty well for video games and particularly if you're trying to create oh descriptions of behavior for a character to follow uh you know levels and things like this so they did put that idea in but it's not, uh, not enough that i could actually list it in my own gameography is something that i did really it's sort of something i i suggested that they did <laughs> i understand of course that you like that game did, did you end up sort of having shootouts with other people in the in the office oh you bet gunfight was a terrific two-player game and uh everybody in the office would play it all the time i it would sometimes bring one of the games home to uh, at the time i sort of lived in uh, a house with four other guys 
and they were not quite animal house, but we were <laughs> aspiring to it. I mean, we did like throw the couch out the window at one of our parties, you know, that kind of thing. But, and we would bring that, those back and they would just love playing the pinball machines and they'd love playing gunfight. That, that sounds the coolest thing. So would you, in fact, were you very much aware that you were doing something groundbreaking here, producing these games? Did you, did you feel that you were at the cusp of something? Uh, uh, yes and no. I mean, yeah, we, we were we liked what we were doing and we thought what we were doing was cool, but I would never have predicted that here I am talking to you about what I did then. I would have I thought it was just, you know, another job really when I was doing it. And in fact, uh I sort of wish that I had taken more notes, uh taken more photos, <laughs> collected more handouts, all that sort of stuff, just because now that I know, you know, what the impact of what we were doing is, but then it was a little more mundane. Uh, Jamie, there, there was another game around that time, which I wonder if we can just sort of touch on briefly. My earliest recollection of video games was playing a car driving game in around sort of 77, 78 over here in the UK. And I've got a feeling it may well have been uh, Datsun 280 Zap. If it wasn't that game, it would have been Atari Night Driver, which was offered a very similar aesthetic. Can you talk to us about how that game came about? Because I think it's got quite an interesting history. Gosh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I've been playing with these sim racing games. 280 Zap was, uh, again, a sort of a port from a game that was done using discrete logic that would then generate the two poles on each side of the racetrack, and then you would curve and so forth based on you know what the racetrack looked like and so forth. All I remember about about it was that it was um, yeah it was, it was tricky to get the whole thing to animate well <laughs> because you, you're racing the beam. The thing that made it a little bit easier was because it was poles that were just rectangles. You didn't meant that you didn't necessarily have to copy from a bitmap onto the screen. You could just write a fill routine, if you will, that would just fill it. I even went as far as to go to the dealer and get a test drive. <laughs> <laughs> 280s app, which is kind of fun. And then of course the 280s app program we ported to the Astrocade and fit it into 2K of memory. And I'm look, I'm thinking of the Forza 7 driving game I just got for my Xbox that's 100 gigabytes. <laughs> and how much, <laughs> you know, uh, this was a time when you could knock out a video game in six weeks from the concept to shipping. I, I really liked 280 Zap uh, working on it because it appealed to my interest in sports cars. Right. Yeah, the fact that it got an official license from Datsun. So presumably some somebody went out and had that conversation, right? I don't know what the actual terms were. That's sort of the Dave Nutting <laughs> level problem. Right. And the other thing I like about the game are the sort of fun elements which you added to it. So um, when when you crash, you, you got these big words which came up on the screen, sort of Batman style. So zonk, boom, zap. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we, we took the, the font that was built in uh, to the game and then wrote code that was just scaled up, you know, so each pixel would turn into an eight by eight byte. So you could put something like zap in big letters across the screen. You know, one of the other stories I, I like to tell was that even back then we tried to make our game so it would run with multiple languages and there'd usually be a dip switch on the back and you'd set it to say, I want to be French, I want to be German and so forth. So I had to go enter all the phrases that were for rating you. And of course, like the zap zork type stuff from English into other languages. And I was given a big list of equivalents to use. And when I did the French one, I, the phrase was reprenez à la l'école, which means go back to school. But 
because it, there was one character that wasn't in my font, I changed it from a circumflex into a C and it got a much more <laughs> obscene meaning <laughs> that was, uh, you know, about female genitalia and so forth. So we had to go recreate a uh, quick uh, panic <laughs> upgrade. Roy. Jamie, can I just come in here actually and take you take you somewhat sideways? And you mentioned your Animal House uh, house setup, and I wondered if you if this was a period with which you were associating with Larry Cuba of uh, Death Star Trench Run fame. And uh, I ask as a as a Star Wars nerd, and I'm just curious about that your relationship with Larry. Um, the 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 um, timing is that when uh, I was in the Animal House was when I was working for DNA in Milwaukee. Meeting Larry Cuba happened several years later, roughly at the time the Star Wars movie came out. He was the gentleman who designed the briefing scene where you see the wireframe Death Star and they show you where to put the a bomb to make the reactor explode and all that sort of thing. So he created that. He worked with um, Tom DeFonte, who is a prominent um, computer graphics expert. Yes. And there's all kinds of stories about him we can tell. Mm. But uh, he, had a, he had a student named Larry Lesky who introduced me to Tom. And this actually happened. I got a copy of a book called Computer Lib Dream Machines. Okay. And so on the way back, what I did is I went to... Uh, go to a conference called Gametronics out in California. So I went out there and on the way back, one of the things I did, well, I, I did some buying and I got a copy of Computer Lib's Dream Machines, read that on the plane back, asked Larry about what are these cool people doing in Chicago? And he told me, oh, well, I work with them. I know them pretty well. And so he got us, Tom Defani and me connected. Okay. I wound up leaving the place I was living at in Schomburg and moving in with Tom Defani and living in his house. Then Larry Cuba comes along uh, on a visit and Tom said, you can stay at the house. And so I got to know him that way. So, and um, we're talking about that mid seventies period and a game that's perhaps not very well known, but intrigues me is amazing maze from 1976. Um, I'm in, intrigued where that idea came from. Was it a little nod to Atari's gotcha? Uh, I don't know where it came from. I know that Jeff Fredrickson was the sort of the uh, personality behind the Amazing Maze game. He really wanted to make it. it you know, he first started out with just a computer program that would print out a maze on the line printer, and then he would get it converted. I think he worked with Tom McHugh to put it together. And so it's it's very much a Jeff Fredrickson project rather than being a dna project although david obviously went along with it i see and maybe that could bring us on to how you viewed one of your big competitors there uh, atari i mean were you trying to aspire to be them oh, no we we looked at them as the uh, people you know, we're still in the stone age of uh using discrete logic to build games rather than using a microprocessor. And it didn't take Tari very long to catch up and start using microprocessors, but we've always sort of had a little bit of a we're better than them attitude, <laughs> even though they, they made a heck of a lot more money than we did. I suppose I aspired to uh, have a hit video game and get, become, you know, make a ton of money. That would have been nice. <laughs> 
of course, there was other competitors, of course, in, in Chicago, of course, um, Williams. Yes. So I just wondered, I mean, this is early days there, but did you mix with people that were making video games in other companies? Not initially, because the first year or two, of course, I don't know anybody and I was pretty lonely, but I gradually uh, got to know a, a larger circle of people. A lot of it came from this Larry Lesky, Tom Defani connection because they were part of a, the art scene in, in Chicago. So it meant that I could find friends through them. And so I did. Uh, eventually, you know, we'd throw parties and stuff. And eventually some of the other people from other game companies would show up. Like I, I think I had Eugene Jarvis show up at one of my parties and I think I showed up at one of his. So, <laughs> okay. How did, did you get on with Eugene? Oh yeah. 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 Eugene is, uh, I, I often describe him as sort of the Dean of Chicago video game designers. And I, I get down on my knees and go, I'm not worthy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Actually, I wouldn't do that, but you know, the, uh, I always envied the success of Defender and Robotron. Yeah. So were you playing, you know, when you were making games in the 70s, would you go to arcades and, and see what everyone else was doing? Or were you in a little bubble? Uh, well, I would I would go to the arcades and see what other people were doing. Although I never got particularly good at anybody else's games except the ones that I wrote. Of course, of course the ones you write, you've been playing so much, you just can't help being good at them. <laughs> so, so I did... Uh, I did go to other arcades and we would also go to like uh, amusement conferences or conventions, which they had, uh, they would have every twice a year, they would have a convention just for operators of coin op machines that we would go to. And so that'd be one place, it'd be sort of like going to the NAM show or the CES is now. And that, that we would see a lot of games that way. Jamie, I wonder if we should uh, sort of move on to the money shot of the interview, which I suppose would be um, Gorf of course, um, mm-hmm. which is the uh, game for which you're, you're most well-known. Was there a point during its development where you realized you were about to release a hit game? Okay, well, uh, there was, but it was near the end. Uh, you know, when it finally went on test and David Nutting saw that it made a lot of money, he was quite pleased, and uh, that was sort of like when it looked like it was going to fly. Uh, before then... Uh, we knew about the popularity of Space Invaders and Galaxians, and we wanted to get in on it. And so I'll back up and give you the story how the Gorf got started in the first place. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the first Gorf game was actually a shooting game, which had a rifle mounted on a, a trackball, basically. And it also had a monitor with a mirror uh, display like Seawolf does. And you would shoot at um, characters, you know, animated characters. And so one of the characters was a the Gorf character, which um, uh, would come out and you take a shot at You get extra points for hitting it. Well, we decided not to do that game. So we set the whole idea aside. And then about the same time, maybe a little after Star Wars came out, Paramount wanted to do a movie based on Star Trek. So they went and talked to Bally Midway about it and gave us uh, like the, the advanced uh, script of the book of the story so we would know what to expect. And so we took a look at you know, we've got some old uh, pieces of grid paper with pictures of the Starship Enterprise on it and so forth. And we figured it would be kind of like the space war where you go out and fight the Klingons and so forth. And we got to start on that. But it turned out that the movie that they made doesn't really turn into a fight the Klingons type of story. It was about V'ger, which is sending the Voyager probe out and it comes back. Mm-hmm. It's more intelligent, which is a much brainier sort of sci-fi concept that really didn't resonate very much with anybody. <laughs> so 
at that time, Space Invaders and Galaxians were big. So David Nutting decided, oh, let's get in on this. And it got Bally Midway to talk to the Japanese companies that were behind th those two games and get them to clear it for us to use. And so we we took many elements from the games with people that know all, all three games, Gorf, Galaxians, and uh, Space Invaders can tell that there's differences. So it's kind of more of a homage to Space Invaders and Galaxian as opposed to a sort of pure version of, of those games. Yes, yes, it was. They What they wanted, the idea was we were going to make a game with multiple scenes in it, sort of like how D.W. Griffith revolutionized film. But we... Uh, they didn't want to just put a bunch of games that weren't tested out. So one of the reasons they sort of went with these known games is they kind of figured that it was a, you know, it's like making a sequel in Hollywood. You know, it's a safer bet than, than, than trying a whole new concept out. Jamie, talk to us a little about the synthesized speech okay. in Gorf. And of course, the double entendres of um, your, your, your end is near and uh, things of that ilk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we, we there was a chip that TI made that would do vocalizations, and they had a couple of different personalities in there that you could pick. And uh, you would hand this uh, chip a vector of phonemes that it would then uh, say. And there was software that would compile um, English words or try make a lousy guess at how to um, um, convert to uh, English to phonemes. Our master stroke was having this thing talk to you and be kind of annoying and goading. I remember going to a meeting, we made a brainstorm list of all the different things you can say, and people would keep adding on to them and so forth. And so your end is near space cadet was one of them. Uh, <laughs> you will meet a Gorfian doom space cadet, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, I used to be really good at vocalizing the games. Yes, I've watched, um, I, I, I watched um, an interview with you from back in the day, and uh, you didn't have any sound running on the game whatsoever. So you uh, improvised and did all the laser noises. Uh, that tickled me a little watching that <laughs> oh yeah i got i used to give leave the best answering machine messages <laughs> people would uh i had people people would just call up to hear them and i could also leave pretty good ones on other people's answering machines so <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned TI, uh, and just for the uh, the more casual listener, you're referring to Texas Instruments, presumably. Indeed. Known predominantly over here in the UK as the uh, the manufacturer of the Speak and Spell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was quite. That was one of their big hits. Yes. I don't know if it was this, you know, which chips went into the Speak and Spell. Uh, we never really like did an autopsy on one of those, but. <laughs> It's, That's uh, interesting. I, I was gonna, I was gonna push you on that, whether or not you took one of those apart, because uh, the golf was the Votrax chip. If I'm not mistaken, I believe so. And is that the same one that's in Speak and Spell? No, I would, I would, I would not know. I would no way of knowing. It's, uh, it just, just sprang to mind. Jamie, um, golf came out in 1980, so that's 40 years ago. So let let's see how good your memory is. What did golf actually stand for? Okay, that would be the um, Galactic Orbital Robot Force. 
<laughs> that would have been embarrassing if you couldn't. Um, it was, of course, also frog spelled backwards. Ah. So we, you know, again, we're maybe uh, upsetting French people. Yeah, sorry. Yes, there's you and the French. Yeah. But, uh, well, I, yeah, the thing about uh, frog was is that when I was in college over at UWM, frog was my nickname. And I had people give me everything with a frog on it. So I had a big collection of frog memorabilia. And um, the famous thing about golf as well is that, of course, it's got these cut down versions. But were you actually given any any code? No, no, I did. Well, I was given some code in the sense that we used a, a, a version of fourth that's called terse. And somebody else built a small, uh, if you want to call it animation engine out of it so that I didn't have to code everything from the ground up. But it's nowhere near anything like Director was or, or Unity is now. It was very primitive. And so, uh, and this was, of course, done inside DNA. So aside from using that, it was all me <laughs> and try to figure it out. So did you actually have a Space Invaders and a Galaxian machine in front of you? No. While you were trying... Okay, so how did it how did it work? Did you go to the arcade, sort of play a bit, and then come back and try and do your version? How did it work? Well, well I would play with it. And the, J David Nutting was still sort of the active game designer. So he would, you know, we'd work out concepts. For example, the idea of a shield that disappears when you shoot and then takes damage was a concept inspired by Space Invaders, but the idea of it disappearing was a uh, one of our innovations. Yeah. And so we uh, think in Galaxians, we, that's where we sort of had the laser attack type thing where the Gorfs could fire laser beams as well as, I'm sorry, the Gorfs, the Galaxians. Fire laser beams. I can't remember if that was in the original Galaxies. I don't think it was. I think all no. you do is you would they would peel off in a formation and hit you with uh, like photon bombs or something. Yet another first in your uh, illustrious career is that Golf has got this end of level um, boss, if you want, perhaps probably the first example of a sort of end of level boss. Um, that ship that you have to shoot. That looks a little bit Star Trek. Would that be right? Uh, a little bit. Right. I think you're thinking Star Wars because, uh, oh, but I'm, I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah Star Wars, we sort of stole from both movies, if you will, because of the. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> the, the, my mothership looks like, like a Star Trek type spacecraft, whereas the, the hit the reactor through the special little port thing, that was, um, stolen from Star Wars. Ah, so you managed to get two of the biggest science fiction franchises into, to one end of level. And um, boss, and uh, was that idea of having some kind of dramatic climax? You seem to throw everything on the screen at the end there. Yeah, yeah, that, very much so. So we wanted a big spectacular explosion. And so we made one. I think we even did some of the uh, big letters things again. I'm trying to remember it all. There was a, some code that I had that would just oh, make a, a blooming fireworks pattern. And we'd use all that stuff. The machine itself was fairly spectacular. I'm intrigued with the... The actual controller. I, I once interviewed a chap called Todd Rogers who had the high score on golf for, for many, many years. And he said he liked it because the controller let you grip it and show off your muscles to the ladies. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I wonder, was that, was, that any, uh, was that any impetus for making a controller that you just grip with one hand? 
Well, the controller thing, we had a contract from Boeing to develop a simulator of the B-1 bomber. Right. And so we, we, we had a big mock-up of the B-1 bomber. It had like four screens on it and they were all networked together. And the, you could sit in it and fly in and, and attack some Soviet city and fly back and had to deal with uh, you know, electronic countermeasures and all that other stuff. And so some of the uh, controls that were used there were things that were taken from the military. And so that's probably where the lineage of the hand control is, as we got it out of this project of, from uh, Boeing. I'm intrigued then, is that did you actually watch golf being played in the arcade in, because it came out in 1980. So did you, you know, can you remember what it was like to see someone actually stepping up and playing the game that you'd made? Oh yeah. The golf game went out on test, which means you would put it in one location and see how, how people liked it. In a large arcade out in the Northwest Chicago area, along with the Pac-Man game. <laughs> and uh, it turned out that the, we had some troubles with the Gorf game because the game earned so much money that it overflowed the box, coin box, and started like falling onto the circuit board and things like this. So it was quite a quite a hit in that regard. In fact, it earned quite a bit more money than Pac-Man did. But uh, of course, it has a much more uh, selective appeal because it was sort of more for the, you know, shooting games tend to go for boys. And that's kind of interesting because I know you did work on a follow-up to golf, to miss golf. So was that was that suggesting, you know, your your sort of challenging gender stereotypes there? <laughs> oh, I think the um, well, of course, Ms. Gorf was even more of a hit than, I mean, correction, Ms. Pac-Man was even more of a hit than Pac-Man was. So we wanted, we said, okay, let's have a follow-on to Gorf. And at this time, Robotron came out, which had two high-quality analog joysticks, uh, one for aiming and one for shooting. And we, we like that idea a lot. And like, as you can see, we shamelessly steal ideas from everybody at <laughs> <laughs> uh, DNA. So Genius steals. You don't need to apologize. Tell us a little bit more about um, the actual idea behind Miss Gorf, because, of course, it never came out. So tell us what it was going to be like. Yes. Okay. So the idea was to have, um, uh, the way I, I used to joke about it, we wanted to kill as many aliens per minute set a new record for how many aliens per minute you could kill in a video game. And um, so one of the ideas, I think David Nutting had the idea of a clone machine. And what would happen is if one of the enemy flew into it, two of them would pop out. And so they could just make more copies of themselves. And um, the, the concept that really I sort of remember about Ms. Gorf was a um, a feature where both you and the opponents can paint, if you will, force fields out. Okay. And if the opponent made one and you flew on it, you'd be slowed down a lot. And so would the opponents, if they made yours and your shots would chip away at it and their chops would chip away at it. So it's sort of like the gunfight cactus in that respect. And but that's interesting. You let the player actually sort of play around with the play field. The player could build the play field. And so you would you usually what we do is you, the game would start, you'd paint out a, uh, a little fort and then you'd get behind that and start blasting and then they would start deploying their guys and then you would have the full uh, play field. So it's, essentially it was a build your own play field as you go type of game. I like that idea that you're giving players the kind of tools to kind of make their own game in the way they wanted to. Is that something important to you? Yeah, I get asked all the time to uh, revive Ms. Gorf. 
And Ms. Gorf, um, when we canceled it, I wound up putting it in a yellow box and writing RIP and having Tombstone <laughs> on it <laughs> because I didn't know if it would ever come back. And people have been asking me to bring it back for the last 30 years, I guess. And I keep thinking that would be a great project to do if I wanted to like learn something like Unity and uh, had some time on my hands and wanted to basically go back to where I left off, but not take the code from where I left off, but take the ideas from where I left off. Because nowadays, you know, the Unity makes it so easy to knock out a game like Gorf or even Ms. Gorf that uh, that's the way to, that's the way to do it. <laughs> wow. Well, I hope we, I hope we get to see it yeah. one day. Do you think it could have been a, a hit back then? It, it could have been a hit, and it certainly was popular among all the people that could play it. Because one of the things we would do is we would take a game and we would leave it lying around the, the, the office and people could come and play it. And so the, sort of our first pass on how good is it would be how many people go up and play it without uh, being told to. <laughs> um, and so Ms. Gorf always did really well in that department. People loved playing it. I sense some wistfulness in your voice about these days. Do you do do you have regrets about Miss Gorf? Uh, about not finishing it. Mm, well, mm. yeah, yeah, it would have been nice to have got, gotten it out. Uh, Miss Gorf, I feel, um, was was less than halfway done. Okay, when when we stopped working on it because. What we really needed to have was the notion of missions to different places with different goals and so forth. So we, in one sense, you wanted to be like Gorf and have multiple scenes. And we, so we never really, we, we came up with one or two variations of the Starfield, but none of them were, were, were as transformative as uh, I would have liked. Uh, in fact, um, I know what I would do now would be a lot like um, Dig Dug or Robbie Roto did, which is to... Uh, okay. I thought the first thing you had to do was take a mole machine and escape from an underground prison by drilling through and the guys would come after you. And that would be that would be the right, my kind of uh, first scene for a Ms. Gorf. <laughs> if, if there's anything which is... Uh, when you say mole machine, anybody of um, our, our generation, shall we say, knows exactly what you're talking about. But yeah. the... <laughs> Yeah, yes. well, I've, um, I've, I've, I actually was quite a fan of the channel. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I've seen the, uh, the TBMs that they, they used to uh, get, get from here, from your play, your, your town to France. <laughs> so that was, that was, but of course this mole machine went a lot faster. It, would, it could sort of, of, sort of destroy the, it didn't have to take the dirt out and dump it. It would just vapor, you know, turn it into antimatter or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> Speaking of mole machines and digging, you mentioned Robbie Roto. Why did how, how why does he have so many arms? Why does Robbie Roto? That was for digging, obviously, right? Yeah. Well, there was sort of the time when digging games were coming out, and it turned out that most of the other people on the team knew about Dig Dug, but they didn't tell me. Okay. <laughs> and, Interesting. But we did the Robbie Robbie went Robbie Roto went through a lot of different concepts until it sort of gelled onto its final go in you know rescue the hostages which of course was an allusion to the whole uh, crisis in Iran and that sort of thing was sort of the last thing it did but it had a couple of other tries as uh, other attempts to try to make a theme out of it. You actually considered basing a video game around the uh, hostage rescue situation in Iran or my yeah yeah I mean, was, wow yeah, yes that was I don't know if if it's that uh that conscious but but it certainly would make sense that i did oh i see yeah sure it kind of uh, seeped into yeah. the yeah, yeah as, as you can see i just yeah as they say great artists steal <laughs> 
That must be great. So the big problem with Robbie Roto was that, of course, what you have is a connected graph and you explore the connected graph. And when you drill or you rotorize, you only can go down an area where there's a pathway and you couldn't go down places that weren't. So you could pick which way you wanted to go. And the big problem that just drove us nuts and it literally took a month or so to try to solve was how to make a joystick work well with eight ways of direction, particularly because you have to make up your mind right, right when you get there, which direction you want to go. And if you want to turn around, go back, that's one move. So we, we spent an enormous amount of time trying to refine that process so it wouldn't feel bad. And I don't know if we really got it, but it, it certainly is a lot better than it was when we started. <laughs> Tell us, Jamie, about the reception that Robbie Roto got. I've watched a few videos of um, some expos featuring people walking up to Robbie Roto and people doing all the, uh, everybody asking, all the journalists asking, is this going to be the next Pac-Man? Like, that's the only reference point they possibly can, which is understandable, but surely annoying for you, I would imagine. Well, that, uh, I mean, I didn't really get that question much because I didn't go to, I didn't go to conferences like that okay. by that time. I was, uh, yeah, I would go and see what games were new, but I wouldn't, uh, it wasn't like I go schmooze with people that much, sure. but I mean, Robbie Roto, uh, certainly had people that liked it. Some people love it, but not a lot of people liked it and loved it. And so it was a flop. Uh, it was quite a, uh, you know, let down, of course, to have a flop, <laughs> particularly since, Robbie Roto was the first game I actually would get a possibility of royalty payments on. Right. And so it wound up being one of those games where the advance that you got on Robbie Roto, you had to pay off in Ms. Gorf, which is, ha happens to record, uh, you know, recording artists all the time, but uh, happened to me. So <laughs> you're coming down off a high with, uh, with Gorf and, and going into Robbie Roto and that, Right. And so, of course, then I was always kind of the person who would have a mentor who I'd sort of try to outdo. Right. And so I was frustrated that they didn't take the ideas that I had directly and they sort of jerked around, came up with this thing. And they, and so there was a bit of, uh, I could do this better okay. uh, feeling that was going on even during the game. And particularly when Dig Dug did pretty well, I'd get that kind of uh, a feeling. Why didn't people mention Dig Dug to you? I think they, I think they wanted me to keep working on what I was working on instead of jump over to cloning Dig Dug. And, and for my, you know, when, when I, and so I actually sort of thought that the whole digging game idea was my idea completely. And it was turned out that, that we both sort of thought at, of it at the same time. And I did something else. Yeah, which is not uncommon when it comes to. Uh... Yeah. Oh, very. It's very common. And mine would have been a little bit more of the mole machine idea. Than, uh, <laughs> a guy with a little shovel. I've always not been a big fan of the Japanese Hello Kitty motif of, of characters. <laughs> Well, speaking of character design, do, um, am I correct in thinking that Dave Nutting had a hand in the graphics for the Robbie Roto cabinet? Yes, he did. And there, by that time, we started having uh, uh, artists uh, on staff. And so Dave Nutting probably worked with one of the artists to actually make the art. And typically, I would get a uh, piece of graph paper with it all drawn out the way he wants the character to look. And it would have notes about what the colors were. Okay. Yeah, so I think he did those. Jamie, it sounds like um, Robbie Roto had a fairly fraught birth, for want of a better phrase. Do you feel its um, slightly chaotic development process resulted in, in the game we saw and hence it didn't sort of capture the public's imagination? Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, you know, I, I can blame the, <laughs> all the people. You know, there was a lot of cooks working on that particular piece of broth. Mm. 
And uh, even though I was getting royalties on the game, I was still sort of, you know, you still had to get them to approve it. And often in video game development, shipping the product it involves many hours of overtime and not doing anything else with your life. <laughs> and so um, after a while, you sort of just want to get it over with. Yeah. Well, I guess one, I mean, I guess one of the things you couldn't have foreseen is um, just how collectible Robbie Roto as a cabinet is now. Oh, yeah. Very yeah, rare title. Yeah. Yeah, there were probably, I don't know, maybe most 200 of them, right. I'm guessing. I could go, I may still have the royalty paperwork somewhere. I've, I actually have found the source code to Gorf on some eight inch floppy disks and have been debating who to bless. <laughs> I suppose I should say to the computer museum because they could probably turn it into uh, bits that would, you know, stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. They were able to do that with Robbie Roto and with other games that I gave to them. Can you talk to us a little more about your relationship with the computer museum then, Jamie? Yeah. One of the things that happened is a year and a half ago, I moved out here. Uh, my mother has not been doing well. And my sister and my mother live together in a basically a three-story apartment building. Mom's in the basement. And so Kathy needed help. And I, more that plus the fact that being a 64-year-old video game engineer doesn't make the phone ring off the hook with people wanting to hire you anymore. <laughs> I had to get away from the Bay Area, which of course costs a fortune. So anyway, moved out here and I had to move into a space that was smaller than the one I had before. And yeah. so I had all this stuff in a storage locker and in around the house that I had to find a place to put. And I came to the conclusion that putting it in the museum would be a better place than just letting it take the danger of being damaged. And so I made deals with the Computer History Museum. They have all the 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 all my uh, media except for this Gorf thing that I have, which I didn't even realize I had when I gave gave them all the other stuff. Mm. And what happened is, I one about six years ago, I gave them a big box full of floppies and so forth, and that's where the Ms. Gorf discs are and a lot of other items from that era. Then just before I moved, I came and gave them more files and so forth. So they they should have files of from my development efforts and so forth. It wasn't I wasn't super good at keeping things, but I was probably better than a lot of people. Like for example, there's a Gorf story. David Nutting had the same royalty deal that I had, which basically said that if you stopped making the game, if quarterly sales went below a certain number, the rights to the game revert to the designer. Okay. And so David Nutting had it for Gorf, but then David Nutting lost the paperwork that proves it. Well, that's handy. <laughs> That sounds like a Star Wars Kenner deal. <laughs> I kept my paperwork. And so when MAME came out, I was able to authorize people to use the Robbie Roto ROM free of charge. And that's probably why a lot of people know it now is because of MAME rather than the distant memory of 1983. Jamie, briefly talk to us about your relationship with MAME. Uh, well, I had, of course, heard about MAME, and I even saw GORF being played on MAME and was following it as technology and remember seeing that it had sort of hit a limit because legally, you're, the only way you could use it would be if you actually owned the ROMs from a game that actually existed. Yes. And so I said, okay, why well, want to have a giveaway that everybody can have that nobody has to worry about anybody coming after them. So the thing I wonder about is, you know, if David Nutting probably has the same deal with GORF but doesn't know it. And the only way to find out is to ship it somehow and have everybody sue you. 
Jamie, the coin-op video game business and the video game business in general went through this terrible crash around 1983, which seems to have coincided with you leaving the coin-op business. I wonder if you could just look back and say what would be your sort of highs and possibly lows of that decade making arcade games? Well, let's see. Well, lows would probably be once you realize that Robbie Rona really did flop. Um, Highs would be seeing how many people were playing Gorf when it was out on test. And that was sort of having Robbie Roto not do that well wasn't like life endangering experience. It was a little despair, but it wasn't profound, if you will. Uh, that would be sort of one example. You know, one end of it would be that. So what happened is, of course, lots of people, lots of places got laid off from the game industry. And they many of us found a home in the cartridge game industry, which took a little bit longer to sort of wind down. And it really didn't really come back until um, uh, Nintendo using the same chip we did for the Z80, but their own uh, frame buffer technology were able to, uh, you know, sort of revive the home game market. You did work a little bit in the home games industry, doing some games for the Commodore 64. Um, but then you kind of, you stayed in tech, um, but you kind of moved away from games. And did you look back and ever miss being part of the games industry? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because this was, there was, of course, sort of after the game, my game stint was, of course, Macromedia, which was a interesting uh, saga in itself, which we, we basically took the idea of a game engine and put a user interface around it so you could create animation. And it became quite popular and sort of the go-to authoring system for people doing CD-ROM and so forth. So ending the game industry and then moving on, it was actually sort of exciting, you know, so it wasn't like a, maybe there's a little bit of a downer, but I was able to get back up. And of course that was a success. So that was the other sort of big, wow, I'm, I'm just really incredibly cool type moment in my life. But yes, I do. Ever since um, uh, I started, I sort of say, working uh, in Silicon Valley, as time has moved on, the way of producing games and software in general has changed to where you have a army that does it. I would say you don't quite have you know space cadets and so forth in it, but you do have uh, just like in Hollywood, a big long list of credits. So I miss the game industry as it was. I've never been that interested in getting into the game industry as it is now because it sounds like it's much more of the cow without the milk. And I really don't like being managed that much either because usually I've, I've had some, some pretty uh, bad run-ins with managers over the years. Have you had any evil Ottos? Oh, well, David Otto was, of course, a Bally employee at DNA who was sort of Jeff's go-for, if you will. But he, he had some technical ability to like TV repairman level. And so they brought him in to work at DNA. And he did a bunch of, you know, ran, uh, all kinds of different things. One of the things he did was he tried to get everybody to show up at, you know, nine to five. And I'm proud to say that I never once complied with that policy, <laughs> but other people had to put up with David Otto. And that's where Evil Otto came from, from Al McNeil's experience of Dave Otto. Yeah, from the Berserk game. I don't know what Dave Otto's up to now, but I certainly uh, hope he's doing well. I wondered, that, do you ever attend retro gaming shows? I did for a few years, like uh, the, around the turn of the century. And I'm still invited to these things. And then it's a matter of, you know, how do I get there? I'm not quite as famous enough that people are going to mail me an airplane ticket. You transitioned um, in the 90s. Since then, I wondered, have people been broadly accepted of your uh, identity or have you have you had any crap? Oh, 
well, let's see. Well, I think for me, it's been more of, I mean, I, I basically have not probably gotten a response to any job applications made in the game industry for 25 years. And do you think that's anything to do with prejudice? To do with trans? Probably. Um, it doesn't help. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, even now it really isn't cool, but at least the difference is I, I sometimes say that if you go back 50 years, it's okay to express a racist attitude. And then 30 years ago, you had to do it privately. And then 10 years ago, it got to the point where even if you do it privately, the other person is likely to grunt at you to be taken back by an epithet you would use. We're sort of at that that uh, twenty years ago stage for trans, where people know that you know that we're um, uh, a minority that deserves rights and privilege and so forth, but they may still think you're strange. You know, <laughs> they're friends when they're not being watched. Okay, but there's been progress. There's been progress. I, I went through a period where I was um, where my transgender identity was sort of more important than anything else, and so I actually operated a transgender. A subscription web page called TG Forum, and it made money having uh, people, uh, you know, go on the internet with their browser and read our, um, you know, we, in fact, we may have invented the paywall. <laughs> <laughs> Dubious achievements. So one of the reasons I probably never got back into the game industry, aside from uh, transphobia, would be just the fact that I was interested in other stuff for 15 years of my life, and of course, gradually had to come back to making a living. And when I was doing that, I started working for larger development teams, which never works for me. <laughs> I hate scrum meetings and stuff like that. You're, you're certainly the auteur rather than, rather than the compliant team member. Yes, yes, very much so. Although I work well with people, I, I don't, you know, like David Nutting would be fine with me, but he doesn't try to manage me. He never really did. He gave me a lot of autonomy. Jamie, thanks so much for your time. So many fantastic stories. And uh, hey, I hope maybe one day you might come back to the games business. Me too. I certainly like having fans. That's been one of the real upsides of this whole thing. <laughs> I'm certainly intrigued um, to hear more in maybe a future episode about uh, about the Gorf Code. That's for sure. And thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jamie. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank you.